Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, which I must mention is uh, coming out next week, uh, available to purchase. And I'm joined today by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, we're going to kick off by talking about the market. Last week, we said that uh, there was a lot of worry and anxiety about the new variant of COVID, and that had an impact on the markets. What's been happening this week, Simon? Is there a different agenda, or is it just more of the same? Well, it's actually, and I probably say this every week, frankly, but it's been another interesting week for the markets, and a positive one as well. So the investment company sector, for the first four days of the week at least, is in positive territory, probably up about 2.1%. That, to be fair, represents a little bit of an underperformance for the wider UK market. So the FTSE all share up 2.7% in that four-day period. But in some ways, this might seem a little at odds with some of the macro and political developments that we've seen this week. So, for instance, we've found out some data in terms of the UK's GDP growth in October, and that would appear to have slowed. Obviously, as you mentioned, Omicron, the new COVID variant has forced the adoption of Plan B in the UK. And certainly the data on that suggests there's a surge likely as we go into 2022, although clearly the impact on hospitalizations is a more difficult question to answer at the moment. But also in the general kind of global geopolitical scene, we've seen President Biden face President Putin down in terms of this possible invasion of Ukraine that has obviously caused some concern and worry. But despite this, obviously, markets have been buoyant, which raises the obvious question, why would that be the case? I think there's probably a couple of things going on there. I think clearly there is a lot of faith in the ability of vaccines to repel this new variant. And I think also as well, markets seem to be betting on the fact that central banks are likely to be supportive for longer. So the chances of tapering and indeed interest rate rises in the short term have probably diminished. And I think there's a lot of talk about how the chance of a UK interest rate rise ahead of Christmas, which at one stage was baked in, now appears to have disappeared. Okay, so one difference, though, I think one should make, and I hope I'm allowed to mention this, is that uh, a lot of people are now gone back to working at home because of the restrictions imposed as a result of COVID. That doesn't affect me, of course, because I work from home all the time. But uh, Simon, you might be affected by that. So that will surely have some sort of economic impact, don't you think? Or do you think we're now so used to working from home that actually everybody can slip back relatively easily into doing what they were doing before? Well, I think the latter is certainly true. Um, Clearly, we've all done the hard yards on this. But yes, there will be an economic uh, impact. And, uh, you know, I work in the, the city of London and you can see that that would impact a lot of those businesses that are based there servicing the the city community will be hit very, very hard. I think the big question is how long will Plan B last for, or for that matter, will we see a Plan C before this is out? So again, lots of difficult questions to answer, and I don't think anyone has the perfect information at the moment. So coming back to the investment trust sector, what's been happening in terms of the, uh, the market movements there? Yeah, so investment companies seem to be doing okay, frankly. As I said, they're up over 2% so far this week. Though in terms of this year, as we've discussed on every podcast uh, this year, they have lagged the wider UK market and and global markets in general. So it has been a more difficult year for investment companies. But then to put that into perspective, 2020 was a very, very strong year for investment trust companies. So 
the largest level of outperformance that we had had seen for the sector. Okay, so let's talk about corporate activity. So there's been some interesting news this week, and we're going to kick off with Majedi Investments, ticker M-A-J-E. This is an interesting investment trust that started life back in the early 20th century as a rubber plantation company, but has been an investment trust since 1985. And effectively, it started life as the family office of the Barlow family, who were behind the original rubber plantation business. Also, there is a not to be confused with Majedi Asset Management, which is the firm that uh, manages most of the assets of Majedi Investments and uh, also manages money for other companies, including, as of last year, the Edinburgh Investment Trust, where it took over the mandate from Mark Barnett at Invesco. So fill us in this one, Simon. So an interesting development here. The acquisition of Majedi Asset Management by Lion Trust Asset Management was announced this week. Uh, the consideration for that deal will be for up to £120 million. A large proportion of that will be in shares in Lion Trust, probably about £97 million or so, with the balance in cash. The institutional fund management team at Majedi, which is headed by James Dupper, who's the lead manager on the Edinburgh Investment Trust, that team will join Lion Trust as the global fundamental team. So it's very much business as usual, the message there. But as at the end of November, Majedi Asset Management had assets of 5.8 billion, of which 1.2 billion was Edinburgh Investment Trust. And that takes Lion Trust's asset under management to about 42, just over 42 billion. But why is this relevant apart from Edinburgh Investment Trust? Well, we've got Majedi Investments as well, a separate investment trust company in its own right. That has a 17.6% stake in Majedi Asset Management. Now, that was valued at uh, just short of 25 million ahead of this deal. So it's a little bit complicated, but the deal equates to about 22 million. However, there's a deferred element as well, about 5.7 million pounds, um, which could be paid out in 2025, obviously subject to a number of milestones. So that's the relevance. But Majedi Investments is an interesting vehicle. Essentially, it's run the underlying portfolios in the hands of Majedi Asset Management, the teams that I mentioned. Uh, but the Barlow family own 54% of Majedi Investments as a large family stake in that investment trust. So a number of interesting aspects to this. I mean, Lion Trust has been a very successful boutique fund management company, but perhaps not quite so boutique anymore. It's becoming quite a sizable business, a very sizable business in its own right, and has been a very uh, profitable investment for those who followed it. But they have now got a stake back in the investment trust sector. They tried to launch a sustainable equity income trust last year, but that didn't get off the ground or was pulled. But they are now represented in the sector, which would be interesting to see how they do with the Edinburgh Investment Trust, but also, as you say, the impact on Majedi Investments. So this is an interesting deal. We know that Lion Trust has been a very acquisitive company. They bought a number of other fund management firms. But uh, in terms of Majedi itself, uh, why would the firm sell out at this point? Do you think it might be a reflection on where we are in the market cycle, for example? In other words, do they see that they're getting quite close to uh, the end of this bull market? I would be surprised if that was the reason. I mean, market timing is a very <laughs> difficult business indeed, and most investment managers will attest to that point. I mean, I think it's interesting when you look at Majedi Asset Management as a, a business. I mean, they've had a few testing years, to be honest. I mean, obviously, as mentioned, they won the mandate to uh, run Edinburgh Investment Trust, and that was a, a sizable gain for them. 
But then uh, equally, they did lose um, some funds that they were running for St. James's Play. So if you look at um, at the end of 2020, they were, had assets under management of $8 billion. And so that has come down uh, a little bit. But uh, look, I suspect most people would say involved in this deal that it's a good deal for Lion Trust. It grows their book of business. It gives them uh, an investment trust. It's a good deal for the team led by James Duffer. It gives them continuity. It gives them the marketing, the firepower that Lion Trust undoubtedly have. And in theory, it should be a good deal for shareholders. I mean, in terms of Majedi Investments, it's a liquidity event for their largest holdings. As I mentioned, Majedi Asset Management They've got a 18% stake in that company. That equates to 14% of Majedi Investments' net assets. And so, uh, of course, remember, there's a quite a high element in shares, but ultimately there is subject to lockup as well. But eventually that will provide some liquidity. So that kind of moves that story on as well. But it's always an interesting one. I mean, as you know, there are a few investment trusts that do have stakes investment businesses. Another obvious one is the Linzel Train Investment Trust that I think we're going to come on and talk about later on. They have a, a stake, funnily enough, in Linzel Train. And there's always a question of how do you value these businesses? So I think there's some kind of proof of valuation. I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of a change from how it was valued at the time just prior to the acquisition and where the deal's coming in. But it gives you some idea that uh, certainly in the case of Majedi Investments, they were there or thereabouts in terms of their valuation. Yes, I mean, the normal way we look at these things is we look at the percentage of the assets under management that is represented by the acquisition price. But obviously here, it's not clear exactly what the final acquisition price will be. It will depend on performance, presumably, to some extent. So if it was $120 million, doing a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation, what sort of percentage would that work out of the $5.8 billion assets under management? I think if you said 2%, you wouldn't be too embarrassed. Very good. Thank you. So <laughs> that's not as high as we've seen for some fund management firms have gone for higher percentages than that, which may reflect the performance record. Uh, just on Majedi Investments itself, I mean, how has that performed? It's been rather a disappointing performer. What's been the impact on the share price, first of all, of this deal and the discount? But what have you got to say about the performance of Majedi, the investment trust, over the last few years? Yeah. So in terms of the impact on the share price, funnily enough, the share price did go up on the back of this news, it's not a massively liquid investment trust company, not least because I mentioned the family, the Barlow family, own over uh, 50% of the shares. But we did see the share price I mean, flipped from about £2.26 up to £2.46 uh, of the daily investment before settling back at the close £2.33. So it had about a 3% uplift or so. I mean, just in terms of its performance, if you look over a five-year NAV total return performance, and it's up 4%. And that's not annualised, that's actually up 4%. So uh, most people would suggest that's a, a modest return and obviously lags a number of its peers. And we've, we've got it in the Global Equity Income Peer Group and it's certainly uh, the weakest performer over one, three and five years. And that's reflected in the discount as well. So it's probably trading um, on a discount of about 18% or so at the moment. So again, I think that's a reflection of that. But it is actually managed by Majedi Investment Management, the fund management firm, is that right? Yeah, so the way that it works, Majedi Investments has this stake in Majedi Asset Management, but then in addition to that, it uh, has four different buckets that effectively are in the hands of Majedi Asset Management. In terms of a UK portfolio, a global portfolio, what's called the Tortoise Fund, and then uh, an international equity fund. 
Okay, so I mean, the point I was trying to get to was, I guess, the relatively poor performance. I mean, it is pretty poor in the context of the of the bull market, I would suppose. It's not a great sort of uh, advertisement for the fund management firm, is it? So uh, I dare say that uh, land trusts are looking both to obviously grow that uh, particular funds under management target with through their marketing efforts, but also perhaps to uh, take a good grip on the performance of the management firm. Yes, you're obviously uh, right in that. I mean, I think you've got to be a little bit careful when you look at Majedi investments and assume that's a proxy for the track record of the different vehicles within Majedi Asset Management Stable. They are separate in- entities. Majedi Investments has some of the hallmarks of a family office, not least that large underlying holding from the Barlow family. So when you look at the different elements within Majedi Asset Management, for instance, the UK equity portfolio side, and we, we see that better through the performance of Edinburgh Investment Trust, which is obviously a pure play. James Duffer is responsible for that vehicle, as mentioned. That performance record stacks up in, in its own right, and Edinburgh Investment Trust has performed well since Majedi Asset Management were appointed. So Majedi Investments is doing a slightly different thing. It will be interesting to see what its long-term future will be, frankly, assuming that the liquidity does come back on the stake for Majedi Asset Management, uh, whether it decides to stick with the team in their new guys. Uh, with Lion Trust or whether it decides to do something a little bit different. Yeah. Now, I was going to go on to talk about uh, Edinburgh's performance since they took over, and it has actually been pretty pretty reasonable, has it not? Yes, that's right. Um, I haven't got the figures to, to hand, but certainly last time I looked, they'd outperformed markedly uh, since their, their, the time of their appointment. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a slightly complex picture. Let's move on and talk about the Scottish Investment Trust, ticker SCIN, uh, where the situation is, well, very clear-cut, I think. Yeah, that's right. And again, we talked about this a number of times. Basically, there's a proposal for Scottish Investment Trust to combine or to merge into JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. This will be done in two legs. And basically, shareholders have approved the first leg of this process. So what's going to happen is that JP Morgan Asset Management will be appointed the AIFM. It's a bit of a technicality, but it's a step you have to go through. And the portfolio, the investment portfolio of Scottish Investment Trust will transition So it's something the strategy and the portfolio will be substantially identical to that of the JP Morgan Global Growth Income Fund. Uh, That's expected to take effect from the 21st of January next year. Thereafter, there will be some subsequent general meetings, which will require shareholder approval again. And that will lead to the kind of combination. Now, that transaction's anticipated to take place at the end of Q1 next year. So mid, late March of next year. So what you're saying, in effect, is that uh, we can start holding JP Morgan accountable for the performance of the trust, well, within its uh, new strategy, uh, from the 21st of January. And then from the period when it finishes at the end of Q1, the whole thing will be complete and the and the thing will disappear. That's right, is it? That's right. Yeah, subject to that second round of shareholder approval. Yeah. And... Just tell us what's been happening on the discount. We did speculate that when this news was announced that provided the market stayed in reasonable form, that we might see the discount start to narrow because obviously the the discount on the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income Trust has been holding pretty steady, often sometimes trades at a premium or around par anyway. Uh, so what's actually been happening in terms of that, in terms of the Scottish Investment Trust share price performance and its discount? Yeah, so in terms of its discount, that's absolutely how it's played out so far. So if you look at its average discount over the last 12 months, that probably comes in about near enough 10%. That's narrowed in at the moment. So it's moving around a little bit, but probably nearer to about 3%. So it's on a little bit of a discount at the moment, but it has seen a marked re-rating. 
And at the same time, uh, the JP Morgan Fund, as you mentioned, it's continued its, its premium rating. It's probably on about a 2% premium or so at the moment. So that looks like a deal that is uh, is going to work out well for everybody, at least on those trends. So we're going to move on and talk about fundraising. Well, as we said last week, we're getting close to the end of the year, but uh, still one or two people trying to get some fundraising completed before then. Let's talk about Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact. Who have been successful and raised gross cash proceeds of just over 115 million US dollars. Uh, they were targeting 300 million, so they've come in a little bit short of that, but they're up and running. They've, they've got this one away. That uh, raise will increase to 150 million US dollars once consideration shares are issued upon completion of a, an acquisition. Uh, so basically, they're going to issue about $35 million worth of shares in part consideration. Uh, so they're up and running. This represents the 15th IPO of the year, and one suspects it's the last, given where we are in the calendar. But this is an interesting vehicle. I mean, I think we talked about this when the intention to float uh, kind of popped up. I mean, it's looking at renewable power generation, transition, infrastructure, energy storage, sustainable fuel production. So things that we've seen before, but this particular uh, investment companies focused on fast growing, as it puts it, and emerging economies in Asia. So if you look at its seed portfolio, which has been valued at just short of $60 million, that's based in India and the Philippines. So it's targeting an NAV total return of between 10 and 12% per annum. Uh, from the start of 2024, it's looking or targeting again a dividend yield of about 7%. So something a little bit different in terms of the energy infrastructure story. And you think that will be the last of the year? You said you might be likely. We've only got, what, how long till Christmas? We've only got 15 days left and uh, the market will tend to slow down. So that will be the last one, you're pretty confident. I'm reasonably sure. I mean, I think the one kind of big piece of fundraising that will just keep an eye on is Chrysalis Investments. I think we talked about at length last week. They're looking to raise up to £300 million. That will be very interesting to see how they'll, they'll fare with that one. And I think there have been a couple which have failed to get off the ground as well, but we won't talk about them because we're not going to hear about them now, I think. OK, move on. Let's talk about some results. Before I do that, I might mention that in the Moneymakers Circle this week, we have a profile of Midwind, which is the Global Equity Trust managed by the team at Artemis. And uh, I've also had an interesting conversation this week with Chris Hutchinson, who's the manager of the Unicorn AIM VCT. We don't often write a lot about VCTs, but they're obviously an interesting sub-segment of the investment trust market. And that's a very interesting investment trust, uh, the, the AIM VCT. It has done very well, but also its largest holding has been an interactive investor, which is just being acquired by Aberdeen Asset Management. So there will be a, a bit of a cash windfall coming into the into that particular trust. It's an interesting trust in its own right. Anyway, let's move on and talk about global investment trust results. And we're going to start with uh, Edinburgh Worldwide, ticker EWI, which is a Bailey Gifford offering. Uh, what have they had to say? Well, they announced annual results for the year to the end of October. Uh, they saw an NAV total return of over 18% in that time, although that represented an underperformance of their comparative index, which was up just short of 36%. That's the S&P Global Small Cap Index. In share price terms, not as good as the NAV, actually. It was up just over 11%. And the chairman in the uh, in the report accompanying the results made the point that this represents the first year of underperformance since their 2016 financial year. So it's very stock-driven, as one might imagine. They're, they're focused on the, the kind of smaller end of the global equity market. So detractors in the period 
included names such as Lending Tree, Market Access, and Ocado. Plus, they had a few Chinese stocks which uh, had a more difficult time of it. However, there was some positive contribution. Uh, companies such as Tesla, Upwork, and Psy Quantum performed well for it. Uh, and they also saw two of their private company holdings listed in the period. So, QuantumScape and Oxford Nanopore, which I think we've talked about a few times. Um, and it's worth looking at actually on the, on the private company side. So, they've got about 11% of assets in 12 private companies. And they're actually looking for shareholder approval to increase the limit in that unlisted space from 15% to 25%. So that will be sought at the AGM. Yes, it's interesting. This Bailey Gifford, obviously, they couldn't do anything wrong last year. But this in terms of relative performance, at least, I mean, an 18% return is perfectly uh, reasonable, you'd have to say in NAV terms. But it does show that, uh, you know, they do have what is actually quite a differentiated style. And it is going to be volatile because of its exposure to small cap and so on. So it, uh, it's a useful reminder that uh, things don't go up always in a perpetual uh, fashion, even at Bailey Gifford. And what's happened to the rating of this one? I mean, uh, the Bailey Gifford name has obviously been very positive in the last couple of years, but has the rating suffered at all in this one? No, the rating is still very strong, actually. I mean, it's on a 3% premium. I've got it on my screen at the moment. And it's worth noting that they issued shares over 50 million shares in this period. So they raised over 180 million pounds. And I think just that point on the benchmark, I mean, as I said, it's the S&P Global Small Cap Index, but this is a very different portfolio from that particular index. So big weighting to technology, biotech and healthcare. And as we've discussed in recent weeks, it's actually been quite a difficult year for some of those biotech names. So, you know, it's certainly by no stretch a a pure play on global small cap in the form of that S&P index. And it's a longer term track record, as the, the chairman no doubt noted, has been very good. It's over 200% in five years and uh, over 500% over 10 years. So it has been a very strong performer over time. Let's move on then. We mentioned Linsell Train Investment Trust, which is a really interesting vehicle in the investment trust sector, ticker LTI. And this one, well, let's talk about it, what it is, first of all, and then uh, let's talk about its latest interim results. So you're right, it is an interesting vehicle. I mean, it's it's dominated by its shareholding in Linzel Train, the actual investment manager. And then in addition to that, it's got about 15 holdings or so. So a very concentrated equity portfolio. It's a reflection of the way that Nick Train and Mike Linzel run their money. So, um, I mean, they're kind of three broad themes, as they put it. Companies with high intellectual property, so things like London Stock Exchange, Nintendo, PayPal, a focus on those companies with strong consumer brands, so Heineken, AJ Barr, Laurent Perrier, and then, as they put it, stock market proxies, which they don't own directly in Linsell Train Investment Trust, but of course they have the holding in Linsell Train, uh, the investment manager. So it is quite a specialist, quite a different vehicle. I think probably the other thing to note as well is that it has historically traded on quite a big premium to its NAV. Because of that stake in the investment manager, they've never looked to issue shares and therefore kind of take advantage, if you will, of that of that premium, because that would act as a dilution of the company's stake in the investment manager. So over the previous 12 months, we've seen it average a 24% premium to NAV. Historically, we've seen it at much higher levels than that. Though just more recently, we have seen that premium rating contract a little bit. I've got it about 10, 11% or so at the moment. Uh, but the announcement this week was for interim results for the six months to the end of September. And it's been a quieter period for Nick Train, frankly, uh, and we've seen this with Finsbury Reference Income. So the NAV total return was up just short of 6%, so very much in positive territory. 
but that represented a little bit of underperformance against the MSCI World Index, which was up 10%. So the valuation of the, uh, and it's a 24% holding in Linzel Train, it represents 47% of the NAV, or at least it did at the end of September. That valuation was unchanged uh, in that period. So I would suggest that's probably one of the reasons why they allowed that rise in, in the global index. And they made the point that some of the holdings do struggle. So London Stock Exchange, Unilever, Heineken were probably a, a little bit off the pace. Though, frankly, if you looked at how they performed last year, it would be an altogether different story. Yes. And of course, the question about this one is always, what is the stake in the investment management company, which incidentally has been extraordinarily successful over the last few years? They have really hoovered up an awful lot of money and therefore their fees have grown dramatically. I think the company itself made 50 million last year the management company. So it's a question of how you value that. And I think it's been a quiet period. You know, the assets under management have stopped growing, or I think they're up by 3% in, the, in this period. And uh, therefore, it, it does uh, dampen, as you would say, a little bit of enthusiasm for the, the company. But again, the long-term record has been uh, extraordinarily good. And uh, Nick Train, in his comments in the interim report, always very honest and very straightforward and quite willing to say that this uh, was the worst period for in relative terms of performance but in absolute terms, still very impressive. So interesting whether that uh, will actually go back to discount. I can remember when Linsel Train briefly did actually, the investment trust did trade at a discount, but that was quite a few years ago. And if it comes around again, it's the kind of thing that some of us sit around waiting years to, to happen, and then we might, uh, might buy some more. Anyway, let's move on and talk about the Monks Investment Trust, another Bailey Gifford Investment Trust, uh, ticker MNKS, another global equity investment trust. What uh, their results look like? Well, these were interim results for the six months to the end of October. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 6.5%. That compared with a rise of just short of 9% for the FTSE World Index. Uh, in share price terms, not as good, actually. They saw a, a slight decline down about 1% or so, and that was a reflection the premium rating just went to a, a little bit of a discount. But again, you know, that long term number is so important, particularly for the way that Bailey Gifford uh, invests their money. And uh, the report made the point that since March 2015, when the management team was changed, it's a slightly different approach. They've seen an NAV total return of uh, over 200%, a share price total return of 230%. And that compares with a rise of 126% for the index. So still a very impressive long term track record. In this particular period in question, they made a number of new investments. So Peloton, which is uh, fitness equipment, I'm sure you know all about, um, that has popped into the portfolio. Uh, a company called Kavana, which is an online US used car marketplace, and Oatly, which apparently uh, provides dairy alternatives. So these are all seen as rapid growth names. Uh, and they've also made a few disposals as well. It's just worth noting in terms of where they are with the private companies. Obviously, that's a feature of a number of Bailey Gifford investment trusts, this, this ability or willingness to use the investment trust structure to get access to private companies or unquoted companies. In the case of Monks, at the end of this period, they had about 6% of the portfolio in private companies. However, over 4% of that was directly through the Shehalian Fund, which again, I think we've talked about before. So they used that as a, as a little bit of an outsourcing vehicle, Shehalian being part of the Bailey Gifford stable in its own right. But Spencer Adair took over from Charles Plowden back in April, I'm going to say, this year. So he's now uh, building his own track record, but it's very much a continuation of the same investment approach. Yes, uh, it is true. I, I'd like to say that I've got off my exercise bike in order to do the podcast, but uh, sadly, I haven't found time for that this morning. But I think it's an interesting point, though, because 
Charles Plowden and, of course, James Anderson, who's stepping down uh, in a few months' time from uh, Scottish Mortgage. They have been, if you like, in some way, the architects of the great investment trust boom at uh, Bailey Gifford. Do you think there's any sort of sense out there that uh, people might be approaching these two big-name trusts, Monks and Scottish Mortgage, with slightly waiting for the successors to prove themselves? Do you think that's a factor in sentiment at all? I'm sure there are a small number of people that might take that view. I mean, that's personally not my view. I think Bailey Gifford, is, is, there is a collegiate approach to what they do. They very much work in teams. That's true of Monks. It's true of Scottish Mortgage. It's true of all the uh, investment trusts. And I think where we have seen some of those lead investment managers retire uh, before at Bailey Gifford, there's invariably very carefully thought out succession plans. And there is that continuity of investment process. So I think that's the way that that particular firm is set up to operate. And, and it would be a surprise to see anything different with regards to monks. I mean, you can see the portfolio and the changes they've made. It's, it's kind of business as usual. It's that ongoing process. And I'm sure that will be true for Scottish Mortgage as well. Absolutely right. And I would obviously endorse that. They are very much a team-based approach. They have to say, as you said, market timing is virtually impossible, but they both seem to be retiring at what in retrospect may look to be a very opportune moment. But uh, that's, I'm sure, is just coincidence. So let's move on and talk about a couple of trusts in the flexible sector. Let's kick off with Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, ticker ADIG, uh, and they've had some annual results. That's right. Annual results to the end of September, in which time they generated an NAV total return of about 12.5%. In share price terms, it was even better, actually up 15.6%. And it's worth noting that they measure their performance against a kind of benchmark, if you will, of 6% per annum over a rolling five-year period. So for this one year, at least, they certainly exceeded that. As the name would suggest, there's a kind of income element to this particular investment trust and their revenue per share came in at 5 spot 14p. That was down on last year. And in fact, their dividend uh, was set at 5.52p. And that was actually an increase. So revenue reserves were used. But actually, there's been a bit of a reboot of this particular investment trust. So a chap called Nalaka da Silva took over a year ago, or a year in terms of this set of results. So at the end of September 2020. And what we've seen under his stewardship as a tilt to private markets. So the weighting of the portfolio was increased to private markets from 25% to 44%. And in terms of the other elements, then unsurprisingly, we saw a decrease. So fixed income and credit fell from 35% to 26%. Listed alternatives came down a bit, as did listed equity. So there is a kind of shift of the portfolio that's entirely intentional. And so far, at least on these numbers, it's so far so good. But yeah, it's a, it's all about building up a, a longer term track record. In terms of the rating, it's worth noting it's still on quite a wide discount. Actually, it's probably about 18% or so at the moment. The other kind of key part of this story is the dividend. And if you actually look at its yield based on the current share price, it probably comes in about 5.5%, which in terms of its flexible investment peer group uh, would put it very much at the top end. So the fact that the discount is still pretty wide suggests that the jury is still out on this new uh, reboot, as it were, but uh, uh, they've got off to a good start, as you say. So now, listeners may not know that one of the services that uh, Winter Flood Securities provides to its clients is a fiendish Christmas quiz every year, which is so difficult that I've never managed to answer more than 25% of the answers. So I'm going to suggest a question to Simon, just to test him, which is Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth began life in 1898. What was its original name? Oh, my goodness. So there you are. That's my contribution to the Winterfords quiz this year. 
Well, I might have to go away and do my homework on that. I remember, I mean, it was British assets when I started covering the sector, but I'm, I'm sure it had a few names before that. So That's a good holding answer. It might be right. You never know. Well, Let's find I out. go away. I'll consult my extensive investment <laughs> trust library and uh, report back next week. Very good. So anyway, if you want to become a cloud and Windows Securities, the highlight of the year is the Christmas quiz, <laughs> uh, which is uh, very difficult. Does anybody ever get all the answers right, Simon, out of, out of interest? There are always a few people every year who kind of crack the code. I think they understand how our minds work because invariably all the answers are kind of key important things that have happened in the particular year in question. So if you kind of work it back, it's probably quite helpful. So you crack the code. It's like Enigma. Right. Once you're in, it all becomes quite easy. Okay. Well, I obviously haven't cracked the code. I'll have to uh, get an inside track on that. Okay. So let's move on and talk about uh, Momentum Multi-Asset Value Trust, ticker MAVT. They've had some interim results for the period to 31st of October. That's right, in which time they saw an NAV total return of 2.1%. That compares with a rise of 6.2% for their benchmark. And share price times a little bit better, up 3.4%. They bought some shares back in the period, about £4 million worth. And it's worth noting that they pursue a zero discount policy. They also maintained their quarterly dividend at just about 1.68p. But in the period, the investment trust benefited from exposure to more specialist asset classes. In fact, one of their strongest performers was Chrysalis Investments. But the equity side of the portfolio, that lagged a little bit on the UK and global side. And that was a reflection of their value and income focus. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about UK trusts now. And we're going to start off with another Aberdeen trust, which is Aberdeen Standard Equity Income. You'll no doubt tell us whether they're about to change their name or not. Ticker ASEI, and they've had their annual results. That's right, annual results to the end of September, um, and a strong set of results, actually. So the NAV total return came in just under 40%. That compared to a rise for the FTSE All Share of just short of 28%, so marked outperformance. And in share price terms, they did even better, actually, up 47% as the discount narrowed in. But uh, Thomas Moore, responsible for this one, and and it's good to see him bounce back, actually, because certainly 2020 was a difficult year. What worked well in this particular period is some of the um, exposure to economically sensitive sectors. Consumer discretionary did well. Financials has got a holding in Premier Mighton and uh, Close Brothers, who I should say are the parent company of Winterflood Securities. And also the fund benefited from uh, limited exposure to uh, more defensive sectors as well. Um, it's quite geared as well. So about 12% or so average over the year. And also they benefited from a number of bids for some of their portfolio holdings as well. John Lang, Equinitive, Hastings and AFH Financial. But the um, income side of the story is important. And actually, they saw their revenue return per share up 29% or just short of 29% in the year to take it to 20 spot 06p. That nearly but not quite covered the dividends or the total dividends for the year, which came in at 21.2p. But that in itself actually represented the 21st consecutive annual dividend increase. But uh, yes, a, a good year for Thomas More. Good to see him bounce back. Okay, so I'm going to move on and ask you next about uh, Lowland Investment Company. That's ticker LWI. The reason for that is in the same investment trust sector, UK equity income. They've also produced annual results for the year to 30th September. So how did they do in comparison? 
Yeah, that's right, the same period. In fact, they did very well as well. So NAV total return of 51%, again, compared with that rise of uh, just short of 28% for the FTSE All Share. Share price terms even better, up 53%. They also saw the earnings per share up 26% to 42.7p. And they've proposed uh, with their final uh, dividend, it will take their total dividend of the year uh, of 60.25p. So some revenue reserves will be used to support their dividend and they'll also tap into some of their capital reserves as well. But it was interesting, the chairman uh, of this particular investment trust, and it's, it's worth mentioning, it's managed by James Henderson and Laura Fall of Janice Henderson. Uh, but the chairman in the report made the point that actually some of the detractors from last year, 2020, have turned into the best performers in this particular period and senior being the case in point or a good example of that. But it's all about uh, looking to maintain a progressive dividend. And as I said, clearly, they've benefited from that bounce back this year. And in terms of the rating of these two trusts, so we've got Aberdeen Standard Equity Income and uh, uh, Lowland. How do they perform and how does that compare to the sector as a whole? Are they looking uh, relatively cheap or relatively dear? They're not too different from each other, actually. So I've got Aberdeen Standard Equity on a discount of about 6% or so at the moment. That compares to an average of 7% over the previous 12 months. Uh, Lowland on about a 7% discount, and that's broadly in line with where it's been over the previous 12 months. I mean, in terms of the overall UK equity income subsector, probably the average is something like 4% or so. But you, you've got to remember, you've got investment trusts in there, such as City of London Investment Trust, a very large fund, Finsbury Growth and Income as well. That discount has widened out for that particular investment trust. But there are some um, quite highly rated funds in this space. Yes. And so in terms of the yield you're getting on this, it is an equity income trust. What kind of yields are you getting on these two at the moment? The yield on Lowland uh, is coming in about 4.5%. Uh, the yield on Aberdeen Standard Equity Income is 5.9%. And there was a period last year when, it, as I said, it was going through a tough time. I think that almost hit double digits at one stage. It was, I think, 8% about the time of its results. So that yield has contracted a little bit with the, with the bounce back in its share price, but still just short of 6% on a historic basis. Very interesting. What's going to happen to the uh, UK equity income sector over the next year or two, I think, in terms of all the style factors and the uh, growth inflation questions? Might be worth having a look. Let's move on and talk about uh, Gresham House Strategic, ticker GHS. Uh, this has been in the news. We've talked about this a lot for other reasons, but they have actually produced some uh, interim results. Tell us about those, please, Simon. Interim results to the end of September, in which time they outperformed, actually. So the NAV total return was up about 24%. That compares to a rise of 8% for the FTSE All Share and a rise of 13.5% for the FTSE Small Cap. So um, there were a number, as they put it, of profitable exits and takeover bids, uh, or GM probably being the most obvious case in point, but obviously Ted Baker and Northbridge loan notes. And as you mentioned, we have talked about this one quite a bit. After the period end, so since the end of September, the board has appointed Harwood Capital as the investment manager to actively manage and reinvest the capital, uh, although obviously this story has moved on a little bit. And given the shareholder feedback, the board's agreed to commence an orderly realisation of holdings and return cash to shareholders. There's also been a bid since the period end for Universe Group, and that will increase the cash balance to about £30 million or so. In the results, they did note that some holdings are likely to be sold in coming months, but actually the managers believe that the majority of the portfolio should be sold over the course of 2023, i.e. not next year, but the following year, as by then the impact of COVID will have hopefully abated. Amen to that. So we do have this slightly unusual situation where this trust is going into wind down, even though it's actually performing 
or has performed recently in the last period pretty well. So uh, that seems to be something that does happen uh, quite often. But over the longer term, what does the track record look like? You're right. The numbers are, are are pretty respectable, to be honest. So, I mean, the five-year NAV total return for Gresham House Strategic is up 95%. And if you look at the FTSE small cap over that same period, it's up 57%. I mean, if you look at the broad UK small cap group, I mean, there's some very strong performers in that space. But on average, around about 76%. So Gresham House Strategic has outperformed over that five-year period. So it seemed to have been caught up in this rather uh, unfortunate uh clash at Boardroomland uh, fund manager level. Let's move on and talk about another very interesting investment trust, which is the River and Mercantile UK Microcap, ticker RMMC, which has had a very uh, strong performance recently. But uh, this is their results to the year to the 30th of September. That's right, at which time their NAV total return was up 59.5%, so a very strong period of performance. That compared with a rise of 45.7% for their benchmark and uh, the discount narrowed as well. So you would have seen uh, a little bit of a better share price performance. I mean, there's been quite a bit of portfolio activity in this time. I mean, three portfolio companies were taken private uh, and obviously River Mercantile would have benefited from that in terms of liquidity events. And they themselves have actually returned capital to shareholders. So just to remind people, this one's slightly unusual, slightly unique, because it invests in micro cap companies from its launch. It had a kind of inbuilt structure whereby if it ever got over 100 million or 110 million of assets, it would look to actively return capital to shareholders on the basis that it ever grew too large, it would be unable to really get some meaningful positions in micro cap companies. So it's a kind of function of its recent success, I would suggest, that it has made these two capital returns in this particular period, uh, returning in aggregate 35 million to shareholders. But George Enzo has been uh, responsible for this one for a few years and it has enjoyed a good run. Yes, and that followed a pretty poor run before that. So it has uh, bounced back incredibly strongly. It got badly hit in the pandemic as well, not surprisingly being a relatively small trust. Let's move on and talk about some overseas trusts now. Kicking off with uh, Bearings Emerging EMEA Opportunities Trust, that's a ticker BEMO, uh, and they've had a, a report out for the same full year period. That's right, to the end of September, in that time, NAV total return of 36.6%. That was an outperformance against their benchmark, that was up 33.3%. In share price terms, it did even better, actually. Share price total return up just short of 40% as the discount narrowed. But it's an interesting portfolio. It uh, changed uh, not that long ago, a year or two ago. It used to be focused on Eastern Europe. Now it's Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa, as its acronym in its title would suggest. Matthias Silla is still responsible for this one. And if you actually look at the portfolio, this you know, big exposure to Russia, still about 34%, though less than what it once was. Uh, South Africa is 24% and Saudi Arabia 17%. So you can see it is kind of diversified in that respect. In terms of this particular period, the Czech Republic was the key contributor in terms of uh, country performance followed by Hungary and indeed Russia. But also the revenue per share was up quite a bit as well. So just short of 24p. Actually, the full year dividend of 26p has been paid out and that represented an increase on 25p for the previous year. I often wonder with these these kind of trusts, you'd think that something with this kind of narrow or very clearly specified mandate would be mainly of interest to professional investors, institutions and so on. But uh, as we know, they're kind of leaving the sector. So what can you tell us about the history of this one? I, uh, I don't follow it very closely, but uh, when did it launch and uh, what kind of size is it now? 
So in terms of size, it's got a market cap just under £100 million. I mean, if you look at its investor base, I mean, there is some of the retail platforms, Interactive Investor will be on there, but also there's quite a lot of institutional money as well. So some pension funds and some specialist investors in emerging markets type products. So I would say it's probably tilted more to professional investors because, as you say, it is a specialist product. I mean, it's been running for a number of years, but it has changed its mandate, as I mentioned, to kind of broaden it out. So previously it was Eastern Europe. We did at one stage have a couple of investment trusts, probably two or three actually, looking at Eastern Europe. And this was the remaining one before it decided to broaden out the mandate and include the Middle East and Africa as well. So there aren't a lot of obvious uh, comparators, essentially, which do exactly the same thing. Some who are looking at kind of frontier emerging markets and so on, I guess, might be one of the comparators you might look at. Uh, Let's talk about Henderson European Focus, ticker H-E-F-T, HEFT. They've had annual results to 30th September too. They have indeed, in which time their NAV total return was up 22.6%. That represented an outperformance, albeit only just, of the FTSE World Europe XUK index. That was up 22%. Uh, in share price terms, a little bit better, actually. They were up 28.8%. So John Bennett and Tom O'Hara, uh, the management team responsible for this one. It's very stock-specific. As the name was just, it's quite a focused portfolio. I think at the end of this period, it had about 45 holdings. And it's quite interesting. Again, I often say this, but if you're going to read one investment manager's report this week, um, this is probably the one to look at. I think John Bennett and Tom set their stall out very well in terms of how they look at the market. They are style agnostic. So they look for where the opportunity is. They talk about some of the value opportunities they believe exist at the moment. They highlight autos and energy, uh, and they suggest that that value has arisen as a result of ESG-driven exclusionist investing. They also tilted the portfolio in this period towards consumer discretionary. I think they recognise that as we kind of got through the pandemic, there would be this consumer boom. So they took the consumer discretionary sector up to 19% and uh, reduced the industrial exposure down from 33 to 19%. But what worked for them? Well, it's very stock-specific. It's Nordia Bank, Signify, Interpop, ASML, whereas a detractor, one of the key detractors with Holcim, which is a cement manufacturer. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about uh, JP Morgan, Asia Growth and Income. In fact, there's three uh, JP Morgan trusts which have been reporting this week. Let's start off with the Asia Growth and Income, J-A-G-I. And they've had uh, final results for the year to 30th September too. Indeed they have. And their NAV total return came in at 13.7%. That was an outperformance as well. Their benchmark was up 9.7%. Not quite so good in share price terms, actually. That came in at 3.6% as they moved from a premium rating to about an 8% discount. But that NAV outperformance came from being overweight South Korea uh, and also the fact they avoided the Chinese education sector. The numbers were a little bit more subdued in the second half of the year, particularly because of the turmoil that we've seen in the Chinese market. And there's some interesting comments from the managers regarding China. They they are cautious on China, given the confluence of travel, mobility restrictions, supply chain disruption, regulatory risk, and the withdrawal of fiscal support. But it's also worth mentioning on JP Morgan Asia growth and income, it's one of the enhanced dividend payers. So off the top of my head, I'm going to tell you that they pay 1% of their NAV back to shareholders every quarter. So essentially, it's 4% for the year, though, you will see some dividend fluctuation in that because of the way they do it. So at the moment, they've got a a dividend yield about 4.2% on a historic basis. 
Okay, so let's move on to talk about uh, JP Morgan China growth and income, ticker JCGI. They've also had uh, results of the same period. So we can compare those two, if you like, different mandates. Uh, but they're slightly more positive about China, I think. Perhaps not surprising. Perhaps not. But they had an NAV total return of 4.1%. And that represented quite an outperformance, actually, because their benchmark was down 11.2%. In share price terms, not quite so good. They were down about 3% or so as the discount widened out. But the shares did trade on a premium rating through quite a lot of this period, and they managed to issue new shares, raising about £78 million or so. But to your point, yes, the managers, so Howard Wang and the management team there, believe that the market correction, so in other words, the Chinese market correction, now reflects the relevant risks, and they remain positive on the prospects for China. And they make the point that there's forecast annualised returns of 20% over the next five years. But it's an interesting mandate. Again, as the name would suggest, it's another one of these enhanced dividend payers. So there is an element of capital that's returned as a dividend to shareholders every time. So if you look at their yield at the moment, it's coming at about 4.3%. But there will be some volatility in that. Uh, and they also have quite a, a high weighting to the A share market within China, so about 37%. Okay, so there's two views there. We might also then let's talk about Schroeder Asia Pacific Fund, which is ticker SDP, different management house, obviously, annual report for the same period. Let's see uh, how they performed. They outperformed. They came in in positive territory. Their NAV was up 14.6%. That compares with a rise of 9.7% for their benchmark. And in share price terms, they did better again, actually. They came in about 15%. So they benefited from having a significant China underweight whilst India, Singapore and Vietnam contributed as well. Some of their key stock contributors, including SEA, Samsung Electronics, Samsung SDI and ASML. And actually, they reduced down their Chinese exposure to limit the regulatory risk. Uh, And also, they moved from being underweight to overweight India during that year. So you've paid your money and takes your choice, I suppose, with this one. China obviously has been a, a, a real drag on performance this year because of these regulatory concerns. It's possible it's been overdone and it's time to get back into the uh, trusts that have exposure there. But there's obviously different views, as you can see. But in terms of the ratings, it's interesting. I mean, both the JP Morgan trusts have moved out to a discount, quite a big discount in a way. And yet Schroeder Asia Pacific, which has done better, is actually um, no better off in discount terms. This is because of the, uh, the distribution policy, probably, is it? Yeah, so just to put some numbers around that, if you look at the JP Morgan Asia Growth and Income, and the the discount has varied a little bit on this one, but it's probably on about a 1% discount or so at the moment, but it has averaged over the previous 12 months around an NAV rating, so a very small premium. The JP Morgan China Growth and Income, I've got that on about a 4% discount at the moment, and that compares with a 1% average discount over that 12-month period. And I think both those investment trusts have benefited from that enhanced dividend policy. So I think that's certainly kind of broadened the appeal of those investment trusts. Schroeder Asia Pacific, I've got that on an 8% discount at the moment. That compares with an average of 7% over that 12-month period. Well, I think what underlines is that obviously the ratings have improved somewhat since these results were issued. So they both refer to a, a wider discount. And that's obviously narrowed a bit. So obviously sentiment towards Asia and China has improved a little bit since the 30th of September. Okay, so we'll talk about JP Morgan. Another trust, this time is the European Discovery Trust, ticker JEDT, which obviously invests in Europe. Tell us about their uh, latest results. 
So these were interim results to the end of September. They generated an NAV total return of 13.3% in that period. That represented an outperformance. The benchmark was up 9.8%. The share price total return, not quite as good as the NAV, but still very much in positive territory, up 11.7% as the discount widened out a little bit. But Francesco Conte, very experienced investment manager, supported by Edward Greaves, and some commentary around where they're seeing opportunities at the moment. France is the largest country overweight, followed by Italy, while Germany and Spain are the largest underweights. And they had modest gearing at the end of the period. So it was actually reduced through that six-month time. It was about 9% at the start. It was ended up about 1% or so. We'll move on and talk about some specialist trusts and some property trusts. So we'll kick off with SDCL Energy Efficiency Income, ticker SEIT. This is one of a couple of new trusts that are looking to attract money from investors who are interested in ESG and also in the potential for improved energy efficiency, as its name suggests. That's right. These were six months or half year interim results to the end of September, in which time they saw their NAV up about 2% or so. The NAV total return was up about 4.7%. They've actually declared dividends worth 2.81p. They were covered by earnings and cash. Uh, Dividends paid were about 1.2 times covered by cash. And they're on target to meet their dividend target of 5.62p for the year ending 31st March 2022. So quite a busy period for this particular investment company. Um, They raised new equity of about £250 million or so in September, and they've made new investments and commitments of just short of £210 in the period, and actually uh, more since the end of September. But it's always worth keeping an eye on the gearing levels that some of these funds are pursuing, and that came in about 35% or so at the NAV as at the end of September. Now let's move on to talk about specialist property trusts. We're going to kick off with Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH which we have talked about a lot because that's been very much in the news because this short seller has, uh, I suppose, initiated what you have to call an aggressive move against the company, highlighting some what it claims are weaknesses in its business model and uh, one or two other matters. We've talked a lot about that, but these are actually the results. They produce some interim results. And so perhaps one could look at actually how the trust has been performing in the underlying NAV terms. That's right. So these were interim results at the end of September. So in terms of the NAV per share, they were up just slightly, about 0.2% or so. So the property portfolio was valued at over $946 million. So it's a substantial portfolio that consisted of nearly 650 properties providing homes to just short of 4,400 people. And in fact, they've acquired some new properties during this time. In terms of rental income, which has obviously been under the spotlight a bit for the reasons that you just alluded to, that actually was up comparable period on comparable period. That came in about 25 million or so. Uh, And they made the point that rents have been indexed at CPI and collected as planned with no disruption from COVID-19. So we did see the EPRA earnings per share down about 4% or so, but they're still targeting a dividend uh, of 5.5p per share for the year to the 31st of March 2022. And in fact, the actual runway dividend cover is coming in just short of 88% for that period. But I think the other point, uh, and again, to your comments on the short seller, that you know they obviously reference back to that. And the board made the point that they continue to have confidence in the revenue streams and assets of Civitas Social Housing and have undertaken share buybacks since this all kind of blew up. So actually, if you look at the share price, I mean, it's clearly has taken a hit and it hasn't fully recovered. But after hitting a low early in October of about 87p, 
Um, we're now seeing it back to over 97p. So this is some way short of its high, probably hit about 120p back in August, but they do appear to be on the road to recovery. So their story is it is business as usual, and they've made their answers to the uh, short sellers attack. But it hasn't totally restored confidence in the business model, and it has affected the ratings of some other trust as well, which uh, in this kind of business. But as you say, they're beginning to uh, edge back up again. Let's talk about Schroeder European Real Estate Investment Trust, ticker SERE. They've had annual results to the 30th of September. Yep, in which time they saw an NAV total return that came in about 3.2%, uh, and that reflected valuation increases in industrial, DIY, and some of their German office assets. That was offset by a write-down of a shopping centre in Seville, and that was fully written down, actually. But there's quite a bit of portfolio activity going on in this period. In terms of rent collection, that came in at 93% during the financial year, and that included 95% for the most recent quarter. It's worth mentioning that dividend cover came in at 69% for ordinary dividends, but they were actually making a, a disposal of a property in Paris, and that will be allocated to cover the shortfall in income in the short term. Okay, and then finally, let's talk about uh, Tritax Eurobox. This is the second of these big investment trusts specialising in storage and logistics. This one, obviously, with a European focus, and they've had uh, annual results to the 30th of September as well. That's right, in which time they generated a EPRA NTA, which is according to NAV, total return of just over 14%. The portfolio was valued at the end of September, not too far off 1.3 billion euros. So it really has grown this one over the last few years. There was good news on the rent side. 100% of rent due for the financial year was collected and along with all the rent that was deferred from 2019-2020. In terms of their adjusted earnings per share, that came in at 4 spot 61 euro cents that was up on four spot one six euro cents in their last financial year and they've declared dividends of five euro cents and again that represents an increase just short of 14 percent year on year so the total dividend was 80 percent covered by adjusted earnings per share and that reflects some of the increases in shares during the time but probably more importantly the dividend is expected to be fully covered in the 2022 financial year and what is that dividend in terms of a yield? I mean, these shares trade around par probably, do they? What's the story there? Yeah, you're right. They trade pretty much around par, but they're on a very small discount at the moment. And the yield on a historic basis is about 3.2%. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you all for listening. Next week, we will be performing as normal. But the following week, Simon's going to be allowed to go home for Christmas. Well, he's already home, but he's going to stay at home for Christmas. So I've recorded a special edition of the podcast, which will go out sometime around Boxing Day, which is, I think, going to be of interest. It's a completely different topic. It's basically an interview with the author of a very fascinating book, which I recommend to everybody who ever listens to my recommendations, which is a book about Churchill and his money. You might think there's some parallels with the modern day, but uh, it's all about the rather extraordinary way in which uh, Churchill managed to live his life and lead a prominent public life, despite having, so we say, somewhat unusual financial arrangements and uh, recur recurring financial problems. It's a very interesting subject for a lot of reasons. The book is written uh, by a gentleman called David Locke, who used to run an investment management firm, a wealth management firm, which is why I know him. Uh, and we sat down and talked about it. It was really fascinating for about 45 minutes. So I hope you might listening to that as a kind of break from the normal 
Investment Trust Fair. And then the following week, just coming up to New Year, Simon and I will be doing a, an edition of the podcast and we'll be looking back at the year and looking ahead to what may or may not be happening in future. We may even find out the answers to some of these fiendish Christmas quiz questions that uh, are going to be winding their way to his glance this week. So thank you all for listening and thank you, Simon. And uh, I'll leave you to get back to your quiz making. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.